The following episode of Fofop is classified MA. It contains some coarse language, some nudity, drug references, a sex scene, time travel, terrible Batman impersonations, a Charlie Clausen pronounced Clausen shaped hole, and mild coarse language. Fofop advises that the program is not suitable for persons under the age of 15, and minors must be accompanied by an adult guardian or priest. This is John Deek speaking. There hasn't been any great advances in prison rape or space travel. The father of the holy toast. Hello and welcome to Fofop, I'm Will Anderson and our guest Charlie Clawson uh, this week. Very excited, first time guest Charlie Clawson on the show. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what you're talking about. You're not sure what I'm talking about, it's Baron Vaughan, that's the voice. Oh yes. Hello Baron Vaughan, that's you. I, I thought you were talking about my past name. I feel like Back actually, in my porn days. Your porn name? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think you are the first uh, black Charlie Clawson, though. I'm the first black Charlie Clawson? Yeah, you are. So I, I'm, I'm Charlie Blackson? Right. <laughs> Blarley Blackson? Nope, that doesn't make It's no, all offensive. Is, all I did was just take BL and put it at the beginning of words like that's going to work. But yeah. it did not work, obviously. Hey, man, I'm happy to have you on the podcast, though. Happy to be here. Thank you for, for being on. Um, you just uh, did a... Uh, um, Comedy Central uh, special. Yeah. Uh, like, I I saw online nothing but positive feedback. Was it all positive feedback? Was it nothing but 100% positive feedback? No, it wasn't 100%. There was a lot of positive feedback, which I was I was happy about, yeah, of course. Good. But, of course, there were haters. And there were not as many haters as I was expecting. Really? Because it is the internet, after right. all. Sure. It is littered with haters. 90% hate. I believe that, I mean, haters... 5% cat gifts. They're the weeds of the internet. Right. They just take things over unless you pluck them out. Tell me about this, then. I, yeah. I'm interested in that, your perspective on this. Do you mm-hmm. think that there is more hate now because of the internet, or do you think there was always this much hate, and now people have, like, an opportunity to, like, share their hate? I think that there's, I think there's just as much hate as there's always been, and I think that people share it more. But I, uh, I just think that people hide behind the anonymity right. of the internet. So it's like you can put out these opinions and stuff, but then you don't have to put your picture or your name. Usually when uh, your hatred is tempered with immediate feedback or response from someone's face that's in front of you, it doesn't go over that well. Right. But when you're sitting at... And I think a lot of people just think it's funny to say mean things. Right. I think half of the hate out there is really just people who don't know how to be funny. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And they're like, I'll just use the N-word a lot. That gets laughs. But it's not. It's not true. So, yeah. Uh, so um, I'm interested in that, though, because, like, I think in the old days, if you were angry about something, it was much more of a process. Like, you know, you really had to be like, all right, I'm angry about this thing, and I'm going to find out the address to write to, and mm-hmm, I'm going to mm-hmm. get some paper, and right. I'm going to write a letter, and I'm going to buy a stamp, and I'm going to go to the post office. The, well, and you're I like, re- oh, God, I can't. I remember somebody... I, I feel like I remember seeing some article that was about... Uh, Porn, internet porn, right, um, has helped decrease the incidence of rape. Right, is that right? I, it was. I don't remember exactly what it was, but there was some study done where just like these guys who are most likely to become rapists, right, instead are at home jerking off right. to porn. Yeah, think 
the Lord. Right. They're, they're raping they, their MacBook, MacBook Air instead, and leaving their house. It's just their keyboard. Right. Yeah, <laughs> that I mean, gets sure. Abused. They've had to replace about 18 keyboards a month. but <laughs> And that's a lot cheaper than jail. Right. Uh, but, I, but I wouldn't doubt if there's a similar thing in terms of hate crime. Right. I wouldn't doubt if just people being able to spread miscellaneous hate through the airwaves right. helps them diffuse it a little bit. You don't have to go to a rally when you can sit at home in the comfort of your... Exactly. You don't have I mean, to join God, the, the Westboro Baptist Church. Yeah, seriously, guys. I don't want to have to write a sign. You've got YouTube videos somewhere. about cats that show you what's wrong with America. Yeah, this is ridiculous. Exactly. I don't have to, like, you know, light a cross and put something over my head. Because I can if, just you make at a, home. if you make a sign, you have to know how to spell. Right. <laughs> at least. With, with comments, not so right. much. Not on the internet, no. Exactly. Do you read... Uh, are you a person who reads, like, your own comments? Say you put a clip up on YouTube or something... Are you the sort of person who would then sit there and go, "I'm going to see what people thought of it"? Um, I, I would. I wish I was. I wish I was going to say no. I wish you were going to say no. But I do. I have done that definitely. I've definitely gone and looked at comments every now and then. And unfortunately, and if it depends, it depends on the time of day. Right. If I'm in bed <laughs> at one a.m. Feeling bad, right? And I go and look at comments. I'm not gonna have a good night's no, sleep. No, that because that's why you've gone. You've gone for the bad. I, well, I went to see maybe somebody I don't know saying something positive. About me. <laughs> I guess not. Sleep. <laughs> Wake up depressed. So, yeah, I've definitely done that. Do you feel like um, uh, it, it will change the way? Because I'm really fascinated by this. Do you feel like there will be a rebellion back the other way because there seems to be so much nastiness on the internet at the moment do you think that it's going to get increasingly nasty and increasingly nasty or do you think at some stage there's got to be a natural bottoming out of that and you know there's going to be some sort of you know well, counterculture I mean, reaction to that I, I think it's already happening I mean I think that a lot of these sites have more built in uh, measures to prevent the nastiness you know I feel like that they're there's a lot more uh, oversight into who can and can't come. Like, there's this uh, thing called Snapchat. Have you heard about this app? Right. So, uh, it's mostly for sex, right, though? But, <laughs> see, and that's, that's what people say, is that you can text these pictures. <laughs> right, yeah. And then they delete. They delete. But, they don't you delete. can't have a, a profile unless you flip it through your Facebook. Right. So, that's their fail-safe. Is that if you send a dick pic, right. everyone knows whose Facebook you are. Oh my god. You can't send that without people knowing what you look like and knowing who you are and where you live. Right. So that's their kind of built-in sort of uh, you know, safety mechanism that just like, you send a dick pic, we're going to put it all over your Facebook. I am quite fascinated by, um, uh, you know, because that was, it was Snapchat, there was a what, chat roulette as well, which mostly seemed to be people masturbating and stuff. Cameras, cameras on the junk. Right. Yeah. But I'm, I'm constantly fascinated at American sporting events that doesn't happen that often because there's so many cameras and so many, like... Because I've always... I, and I've spoken about this on the podcast before, but I enjoy when I go to the basketball or something here and have, like, the you know, cameras and people are dancing and they're prepared these acts and right, this right. kiss cam and stuff like that. Right, right. But they would have one of those in Australia. They would spend millions of dollars installing it and 10 seconds into having it, someone would get their cock out and ruin it for everyone. <laughs> like, <laughs> That has to have happened. You'd think it must have. It happened, has to have right? happened in the yeah, in the United States especially. There, I've seen footage of people, ha- you know, being caught having sex at games. At games. At games. At yeah, p- hockey games, basketball games, football games. The camera goes over and they're having sex. Like, oh, you know, that's not what they. They didn't want to get caught, but right. they did want to get caught. Well, I mean, obviously that's got to be a thing, right? Definitely. Like it, exhibitionism, right? If yeah. the only way you can get off is to the sound of dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
I've got a sport. She has to be wearing a jersey. It has to say 23 because that was Jordan's number. I want to uh, orgasm right on the buzzer. Right on the buzzer. Exactly. When they say charge, guess what I'm going to do? <laughs> oh, shit. They've called a timeout. Stop. Oh, stop. stop. <laughs> Flag on the plane. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But I, I would assume that that is part of their fetish. Yeah, definitely. Is there... Um, have you ever been a, a public sexer? Is that a thing that you... Uh, I haven't. I haven't. I haven't had sex in public. I haven't had. I didn't have sex in a car until I was like an adult. What do you mean? I mean that it just didn't happen. It didn't happen. Right. Uh oh, we have a special guest. We do have special special guests. Special guest. Special guest. Kurt Brownholder, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Kurt, doing? Kurt's like the uh, Kramer, the wacky neighbor. <laughs> Just come in. Hey. How are you? Good to see you, sir. Good yeah. to see you. Well, good well. to see you. So the set. Here you go. This Set. is a very Hello. cute dog. It's a great dog. What are you guys talking about? Just um, stuff? Yeah, yeah, stuff. You stuff guys going for a walk? Watch out your water. That dog's going to go after your we water. We just did. All right. We just went for a walk. It's too hot out. It is it hot. It is really hot. hot. It's yeah. really hot. Yeah. It's very hot. What do you know? Really? What are you guys getting into? Look, <laughs> right. getting closer to the mic. You should come. I know, I'm an old I'm an old. Why don't you, why don't you join in? Do you want to come in? I got to go record my own podcast. Well, fuck you. Damn it, Kurt. This is, in fact, this is like cross promotion, right? This is cross promotion. This is like one of those things down the bottom of the, the screen that says tune over now. <laughs> yeah, make sure to check out Kurt. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I got to go record my podcast, The K.O. Uh, sorry, guys. <laughs> it's on Nerdist.com. Check it out anytime you want. Oh, what, what, what's the website for that? Oh, Nerdist.com. Oh, interesting. Okay. This is like All the right. podcast interruption. I think you're doing Doug Benson shit. I'm oh. not sure. That's hilarious. I wonder if I, if I get closer to the mic, I'm going to be louder than everybody. You actually probably will be louder than everybody. <laughs> right. Whose yeah. podcast is it? It's Will's podcast. Yeah. yeah, Will. This is the great thing about co- comedians, though, is you have to ask them, whose podcast is it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know you're all sitting around talking to each other for no just, money. But are, you just, just, are, you, are you guys just friends, or are you actually <laughs> podcasting? Right. Which one is? It? Which I one is it? I now only see people like through podcasting. Through podcasts. Right. It's the best right way to work. catch up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, then the, and then the internet gets to catch up with us. Yeah, right. Really. But also, what I enjoy about comedians the most is comedians have just thought, I want to catch up with my friends and talk shit, and the world needs to hear it. <laughs> But how can I use it to get more people at my show? But in some places, people really do want to hear it. Right. A lot of cases, people people, people love it, man. People love it. I love it. I love it. That's, right. That's but, how I do. I, I don't have to hang out with people anymore. I'm just driving around listening to their podcast. <laughs> oh, that's what's going on in their lives. I mean, it is a good way to catch up with people. Yeah. But, but often, if I like, particularly because I'm overseas a lot, I'll listen to all my friends' podcasts back home. We'll get home, we'll have like a big night out to catch up, and they'll start telling me stories. Mate. Yeah, heard on the podcast. <laughs> heard on the podcast. Yeah. Save it, save it. <laughs> what, what stuff haven't you burned? What stories haven't you burned for me? Give me, <laughs> give me the B sides. Yeah. Give me the B sides. Yeah, give me yeah. all this. The libelous stuff, all the sex stuff. <laughs> exactly. That's all I want. Yeah. Exactly. Right. What's your dog's name again? Zelda. Oh. Mm. Yeah, good. You looked. She's slowly learning her name. Um, all right, I'll let you guys get back to it. All right, Kurt. Have fun. Good to see you, man. Good to see you. Well, peace, McGillicuddy. Baron. All right, see you later. Ow. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely a crossover episode right there. There you go, I like that. It was like a, it was like a, it was like that episode of All in the Family where the guys from Sanford and Son walked in. I like. <laughs> I don't know that. I don't reference. think that actually happened, but uh, <laughs> did you guys have you had All in the Family in Australia? You know what? I don't. I mean, maybe, but I certainly don't remember 
oh, well, you are doing the best visual gag for a podcast that anyone has ever. Your bottom lip was really That's what going it is. With most podcasts I get on, there's always like five minutes of silence where right. the host is laughing and people are like, what is happening? I think people be... would have been really enjoying Kurt standing up and then leaning into the microphone. Exactly. They exactly. may have been out of work that well, he also the... he also appeared the way that he appeared at the door with his face kind of in right. the window. Face at the window. Face in with the window. With a dog. <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, what uh, the heck so are we All in the about? Family. I yeah. want to know. But, so tell me about All in the Family. All in the Family was a sitcom in the 70s. There were a couple sitcoms by, made by this guy named Norman Lear. Uh-huh. All in the Family, Sanford and Son were two of the bigger ones. I right. want to say the Jeffersons. But when you look back at those, podca- uh, those podcasts, sitcoms, I mean yeah. to say, this <laughs> right. is early sitcoms. So this is like the beginning of... It not being like the Honeymooners and the okay. Dick Van Dyke show. Uh-huh. Yep. And it was the 70s. So it was this kind of Nixon-y Carter America in which uh, we were in the middle of a recession. There was a lot of civil unrest, you know, post-Vietnam and stuff like that. And those sitcoms were incredibly edgy because right. it was before corporations took over all the TV stations. Right, so when you could actually say edgy things without losing your sponsors. And you look at them now, and you're like, how did they get away with this? But they, like, really, like, went after, they domesticized, like, like stuff like the, the, the depression that we were going to and, like, class and race and stuff like that. So they really went after it when you look at those sitcoms. And now it's just, like, it's not PC enough. Do you think that, because, I mean, it's a big time of cultural, uh, you know, significant cultural change in America now, again. Mm-hmm. You know, like, massive unemployment. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the rich are so incredibly rich. So rich. And yet the rest of the people really aren't seeing the benefits of that. It feels like it's another... You know, America's trying to work out what its place in the world is now, you know, with the emergence of China and stuff like that. If, but none of that really does get reflected much in... I mean, it's not... You're not seeing well, a lot it, of that in sitcoms, are you? No, 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 no. Uh, you know Dylan Moran, right? Right. I remember seeing him in New York, and he said something... He, he gets so many mentions on this podcast. Does he really? Way. He's my favorite comedian. Is like, he your favorite comedian? My favorite comedian in the world. Well, he, he became one of my favorite comedians yeah. when I saw him in New York years ago. It was called The British Invasion. Sure, yeah. he's Irish, but we'll take it. Right. But it was like... He lives in Scotland, so he, he likes lives to in get Scotland? around. Okay. Yeah, he's Irish, he lives in Scotland. He lives in Edinburgh? He works in, the, in Edinburgh? Uh, Glasgow? I think he lives in Edinburgh, but he's okay. in Scotland. Well, regardless, I saw him, and he, and he said that. He said that, like, you know, he said it's like ancient Rome. In that whoever the world power is, mm. the citizens of it are the least politicized. Right. So it's like, that's how you could, the, the measure of apathy uh, corresponds to the measure of entropy. Oh, right. oh. vocab <laughs> Made slightly less impressive by the celebration afterwards. <laughs> exactly. I always negate it. I said that to somebody, I said that to somebody the other day. I was like, uh, yeah, I said to someone, uh, you never know how wrapped you are around a concept until you try to untangle from it. And then I negated myself by going, ooh, that's good. <laughs> like instantly after that, pat myself on the back for a nice little turn You're giving your, uh, your own positive internet feedback. That's exactly. Good. I'm my own You're commenter right You're now. a lover. But I guess it, it, I'm just saying that like, yeah, I think that the citizens of, of the United States are the most apathetic. Right. Because they're the most powerful. But... It is changing uh-huh. because we are, because of the internet, because of, you know, we're, we're looking at the events and the actions of this country on uh, international sphere in a way that we never have before. Like, I feel like 
the citizens of every other country in the world knows what's going on in the United States. We don't know anything about any other country. Right. I, I did say that when the uh, the email uh, yeah, and phone call spying news came out that they were spying on other countries. And I said, well, they have to, because you can't find any fucking news of other countries on American news channels. So the only way you'd find out what is going on in the rest of the world is going through their emails. Basically, yeah. I mean, and, and that's what is sad about it. But then also the citizens of our country, luckily, are finding out more about like, oh, my God, our actions have... Uh have consequences in other places. That's crazy. But then a lot of people are also like, but I can also just look at this 43-inch television. Right. That's a, that's another way to distract myself. Well, I mean, I think that like a lot of issues are complex. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, that's the thing that people are, you know, it, you don't have to be, people think that everything has to be so black and white, I think. Yes, yes. Like, well, especially, you know, we're, we're very obsessed with like right and wrong, black and white, stuff like that. Yeah, I'm obsessed at the moment with this idea that the pro- one of the major problems with life always seems to be when, I mean, I think life is essentially mostly unexplainable. There are bits of it that we can explain, but mm-hmm. the whole concept of life is, is you know, even, you know, science can't explain it all yet, you know, if ever. Um, you know, religion and that, yeah, they all can't explain everything. Or there's, com- there's conflicting messages with the things that we can scientifically prove. Mm-hmm. Anytime we try to come up with rules to define something that is essentially in- undefinable, then I think we get in, in trouble, you know. Mm. And I think that this black and white that everyone thinks you, you have to be one or the other. You know, this op- oppositional rule of politics, which is that our job is just to say no to everything they say, even if it might be in the best interests of people. I mean, it's hard. The one, that, the thing for me I find really interesting is the American military. Mm. Because America has been, and Australia is the first person to go to war with America. Like, whatever war America goes to, Australia is the first person to sign up. Right, right. right? For very particularly selfish reasons, I believe, which is that China is very, very close to Australia. Yeah, yeah. We sell the majority of our resources to China, right. but there may be a point in history where China realized that they could just come and take them. In which case, you know... Well, we're also in debt right. to China as a country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to be honest... <laughs> Whenever China's when they, like, hey, I need that back, we're screwed. Right. That, 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 that will actually be what happens to Australia. China will come for our resources. We'll call America uh, and say, hey, remember we went to war with you guys? And we're like... Ah, uh, yeah, but... Uh, well, we kind of owe them Yeah, that. we owe them. Hey, so. could, you just, could you just take this one for us, buddy? Right. Uh. They said that they would uh, repay uh, our loans if we turned a blind eye to the Australian thing, so... So this phone call never happened. Yeah, good luck, fellas. Thanks for Paul Hogan and Yahoo Serious. Follow me on Twitter. <laughs> Um, But I find it really interesting when I come here because I certainly don't want to be disrespectful of people who go and and serve overseas because as I always say, if someone's willing to fight for freedoms that I live and abuse, you know, most of my life, then, you know, I really am supportive of that. But Mm -hmm. then they build up this system around it you know, like all the posters, all the people th- being thanked for their service. You can't go to an airport without saying there's a special place for the military and we salute you, which in some ways is a really positive thing. These people are going overseas to, you know, maybe trade their life, you know, for the freedoms that you enjoy. Mm-hmm. We're reminding you that that is happening. But there's another bit of it that feels like you're in Starship Troopers. You know, no, you well, get off the plane and, and you just That's go, the whole point of right. what Starship Troopers is about. But you know, uh, you know who Paul Rykoff is? No. Paul Rykoff is a guy I've met a couple times. He is a really fascinating individual. He has served a tour of duty in Afghanistan, I believe, twice. Two mm-hmm. in Afghanistan and two in Iraq, right? And um, I, he went to military school. Incredibly smart guy. He came back. I saw him speak in uh, <clears throat> New York because he's friends of friends. I used to do the show where it was like 
people would talk to someone in the media that's like doing like fighting the good fight. Uh-huh. And Paul Rykov, he started a thing called the IAVA, the Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans Association. Right. Because he would talk at length about well, it was also still Bush's America at the time. Like Obama wasn't in office yet, but he would talk at length about like, well, it's not only that we that we didn't plan well going into the war, but coming out of it is completely a shamble as well. So it's like the coming out of the war is right. going to be a, a gigantic thing because people are serving multiple tours. They shouldn't be. They're going through psychological trauma that is not good for them. And they're going to come back to citizens that do not understand what it is that they've been doing, families that don't. He's like, they're, it's divorce, depression, and crime. That's what's to come. Anyway, I'll see you guys next week. But it's like... <laughs> but he, he had this really fascinating point about the military in terms of that it, the military is a social experiment, in right. a sense, in that they're a warrior class. It's Spartan. It's Sparta. Mm-hmm. They go and live on bases. Yep. They, we, they are selected from the general population. They're, in, they're giving a new set of rules because... Uh, military bases and camps are not democracies. There's a very strict order of command and how it works depending on which branch of the military you're in. And again, that's one of those things when it comes back to rules. I think people find a real comfort in rules. There are certain sort of persons who go, well, I was just following rules. I was just obeying my orders. I know what following I'm doing orders, every day. Exactly. I I'm don't have to... Just doing my job. Yeah, exactly. Right? But uh, he also talked about like the idea of the military exporting democracy. He said it makes no sense. That's not our job. He's like, we're warriors. Right. We're not politicians. And we, we're, our job is to fight. It's weird right. to, to say, like, oh, we're going to export democracy while we have guns on our backs. Yeah, we're not democ- democracy exporters. Yeah, he said it's basically like having a plumber fix your television. They might understand a few things, but that's not what they're built for. Right. That's not what they're doing. So he's like, it's just an, it's an incredible social experiment when it's just like we're sending our military. Plus the idea that we have a mil- the United States has a military base in almost every country. Mm. Every and that's just par for the course. Everyone's just like, yeah. But if like China was like, hey, we want to spend, we want to build a military base in Florida, we'd be like, this, you're dumb. What are you talking about? <laughs> that's never been that stupid. But that's why China, China has a Chinatown right. in every single city. <laughs> that's the real military base that nobody's paying attention to. At some point, every China, every place is just going to be Chinatown. Right. <laughs> They're just all going to expand until they connect. They're going to be like, oh, Hang on. how did we not notice this? <laughs> it was a delicious scallion pancakes. That's why we didn't notice. <laughs> I like the idea that it's just like a block by block expansion that no one's really noticing. And it's, it's like the most subtle colonization you could ever see. That's what Chinatown is. We send McDonald's everywhere. They're just starting Chinatown everywhere. <laughs> And then we're like, oh, I guess this is. I guess I live in Chinatown now. <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, you never considered uh, joining the military. That wasn't like something that. Well, that's the other thing. Is it like, look, I grew up. I grew up poor and black in America, so right. I'm a prime suspect for them. Right. That's and right. And it's though. just like, and a lot of people. I don't think necessarily everybody understands that, particularly in times where they are sending a lot of people to dangerous places. Like, there's a lot of recruiting that goes on. You know amongst the kind of the poorer classes because it is a job and it is a you well, know it's a job and it's a purpose and there's just there's so many promises it's like on the other end of the right. military we will give you x y and z you know all those things you're also supposed to want right we'll give you a good we'll pay for your college education so you can get a good job and blah 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 and i know a lot of people that are in the military for completely different reasons mm. but they do prey on 
the poor. Right. They, that that's the most likely people to join the military yeah. when they have no other options. Right. So they kind of back them up against the wall. And then there are plenty of people who join the military of their own volition. Right. But as Paul Rykov once said, you can't have a volunteer army and remain a world power. He's like, it just, it's just not, it just, it's not a system that sustains itself. Yeah, people don't want to, uh, like, you know, because it is dangerous. And you are like, you know, you're, you're offering to give your life, you know, in exchange for, you know, but it's like we used to have a draft, right? You just had to do it. Sorry, I'd like I, I, if they ever bring back the draft. I think it should be more like the NBA draft, where <laughs> they rank all the soldiers in the country <laughs> in order of preferences. I think that would at least that would bring you. You might go number one in the draft, but at least you'd be proud that you were like the number one potential soldier. You know, and you know what? Also, there's also you could almost say that there's elements of nepotism, obviously, in the military. Because if you think about the military academies, they're prestigious universities. Mm -hmm. Like those things are as hard to get into as Harvard, as Stanford, as Cornell. Right. So it's like you go to these military academies, there's only a certain class or group of people that can get into those schools. And then they come out as officers. Were you very aware of the class system in America when you were growing up? Like, was it, is, it, is it evident to you when you are growing up here? Because as an outsider, you see it, obviously, you know, because you walk into something right. and you go, I can see, you know, how, what this is and how it is. But I often think that sometimes when you're in the middle of something, you don't see things in the same way as an outsider coming in to have a Hard look. Hard to tell what color your house is when you're standing inside of it. Right. But it's like, yeah, I, I wasn't as a, I was and wasn't aware of it as a, as a kid. I, I understood that, especially when in high school I went to a magnet school in Las Vegas. Okay, so we just recently, I went and... Got did, magnet schools? So, no, we don't have magnet schools oh, okay. in Australia, as far as I know. I, right. I'm not an expert in... High school. High schools. <laughs> it's been a while since you've been there. Yeah, restraining orders uh, have prevented me from doing research. Totally fine. So, uh, I, did, uh, I was in Alaska doing shows, and they invited me to go to their local school to do a uh, stand-up comedy course. All the kids were learning step to do stand-up How comedy. How old were these kids? So 13 to 15, oh, I would say. So wow, from okay. a range of different classes there. And this was their elect, you know, whatever it was that they were doing. Some kids were off doing, you know, trial court and these kids were doing stand-up comedy. It was their, it was a, their, kind of their speech night sort of thing, I suppose. Right, right, okay. And so they asked me to go in and I like gave them some tips and then they all did their set for me and I gave them like some feedback on what they, what were, they doing. were doing okay. so but that was the first time I'd ever experienced a magnet school like that, that was the first time I'd ever been to a place like that right so right. explain to me from your perspective what that is because I was well, trying to talk to the audience about it but I didn't really understand. well a magnet school is well they call it that because kids are attracted to it oh the school offers a certain curriculum right and certain program and certain education so you the children are interested in that so you apply to that, you know, or your parents apply you to that. Uh -huh. But so in Vegas, I went to a group in Las Vegas and I went to a magnet school, which was a performing arts high school. Right. Because I had heard about it and you had to audition to get into uh -huh. it. Right. But what it does is as opposed to zoning laws where um, you are zoned to go to a certain school that is near you. You know, you are a resident of that area, that district. Therefore, you're supposed to go to that school. Now, in Vegas, in when I was in high school and middle school, there was a gigantic influx in people my age. There was there were not enough schools. So what happened when I was in sixth grade, they bust kids from one side of town to the other side of town. And I got bust. I had like a 40-minute bus ride to get to my school. Uh -huh. 
uh, on the opposite side of town, I didn't live there at all. Then I was zoned to go to certain schools, but a magnet school is an elective school right. where you have to apply to get to it and you go under a review process and then they accept you. The thing is, um, that's when I started becoming more aware of class and whatnot because what happens is that suddenly I'm next to kids of all different kinds of classes and races. It wasn't just kids from my neighborhood anymore. It was, oh, these are kids from all over the entirety right. of Las Vegas that live in completely different neighborhoods. And if I want to see them like at night to be social, I got to go to this other side of town. Suddenly I'm seeing what that side of town is like as opposed to where it is that I live. So it started to make me more conscious of that, but it wasn't also until college. And that's, I think, the biggest thing is that when you go to college, then you are smack dab against like all these different people from all these different cultures, countries. Um, and usually, of course, the richer people in the different from different countries, like just like, okay, you're the rich people from India. Yeah. That's why you. That's why you can afford to send your child all the way to freaking Boston. Yeah. Um, and it's like, uh, so you're hobnobbing or whatever. Oh, I hate that expression, hobnobbing. No, but, I believe that's what you do with upper class people. You yeah, hobnob. But it's usually not until I think I think until university that people don't uh, think about their position in the world because then that's when they're first around a bunch of people from different classes. But I had that in high school. I'm interested in the idea that you had to audition to get into school. Yeah. Like, I, uh, in my head, I pictured it like the auditions for America's Got Talent, where there's just like a line of people doing acts, I assume. What did you have to do? What did you have to audition? I, like, was it well, like a- it was a performing arts high school, and there was theater, uh, singing, uh, band, orchestra, and visual art. Ooh. Right. But then there was also, oh, dance. Did I say dance? I don't know. No. I, I, with Vegas, surely you would... Was there not a magic? I, I uh, no, that, that, not magic. No. Uh, not a showgirl major. No, showgirl. You'd, be, uh, you'd, be, you'd be surprised. And not a blackjack major either. <laughs> uh, even though I could do all those things. Watch out. <laughs> I could deal you a hand and do a high kick and then pull a bunny out of a hat. Um, that was my senior project. No. Uh, yeah, so I did have to audition. And I had to prepare a monologue from... I just found this book of monologues because I wasn't... I didn't. Uh, I hadn't. I wasn't a person who read plays when right. I was in eighth grade. You know, when I was thirteen, I was like, uh, I'd like to collect works of William Shakespeare, please. And um, also, while you're at it, I'll take some Harold Pinter. Um, <laughs> it was just like. So I found a monologue book that was just like monologues written for people that were my age. Right. But they weren't monologues lifted from existing works. They were just monologues written to be monologues. So yes, there was a line of kids dressed nicely that were going to audition. And I remember, because at the time I was really into bowling, as a, as a, I just really liked bowling. Right. I liked bowling, and I liked Hercules, The Legendary Journeys, <laughs> and Xena Warrior Princess. Right. Right? Lucy Lawless. Lucy Lawless. Ugh. Don't even say anything. I will not be able to continue. Really? You had a um, Lucy Lawless thing? Of course I did. What are you talking about? I watched Xena Warrior Princess. I uh, was in New Zealand in Auckland uh, doing some uh, shows, and they were having a, uh, it was a climate change march. So oh. like, a, you know, like, a, yeah, for the environment march. Right. Unfortunately, it wasn't helping the fact that it was the middle of summer and it was freezing cold and raining in New Zealand. So oh. it didn't really help their point, you okay. know, they were making. But anyway, they were having this day and they got New Zealand's three biggest celebrities to speak at this thing. So one was a girl called Keisha Castle Hughes, who was in... Uh, a movie called The Whale Rider and she'd oh, just been yeah. nominated or won an Academy Award yeah. so at the time she was like you know a big star right. there was a guy called Reese Darby who's a stand-up comedian I know Reese Darby I don't know him personally I know who, he is, who yeah. he is 
And the third one was Lucy Lawless. Oh, shisa. Yeah, it went right past my hotel. Oh, that's there too bad. Go. It's too bad for you. <laughs> I just, I just want to, uh, I just want to smell her. Anyway, um, <laughs> so yeah, so it was a line of, so that's what it was. It was like I went and auditioned because I, and I was, I was preoccupied because right, so I, you're into bowling. I was, yeah. I was preoccupied because it was a Saturday, and it was around like three something, two two something, and of course they were running late. Yeah, but bowling was on at three. Yeah, and then. Uh, Hercules and Xena were on at four. So that's all I was thinking about. It's just like, this, this is taking too long. I'm going to miss Hercules and Xena. So probably that fr- <coughs> frustration informed my acting, and they were like, this kid's got a fire. Yeah, this I like, kid's got a little he's edge. Got, he's got a little edge to him. <laughs> I wonder if it has to do with bowling. Yeah, I used to have a joke that's like, I used to want to be a professional bowler, but that was also a time in my life when I referred to Xena Warrior Princess as well-written. <laughs> So those things don't go. Were together. you a bowler though? Were you good at bowling? I did. I did like bowling. Yeah. Yeah. My like, grandmother was friends with this man who is arguably the greatest bowler of all time, named Earl Anthony Jr. Right. And he taught her how to bowl, and then she taught me how to bowl. So I take my when I go bowling, my form is flawless. Right. My aim not so much. I am I'm out of practice. So I can I, can, I look good doing it. But I don't, I don't score well anymore. But uh, what, what would it, back in your day, what would have been your highest bowling score? Oh, uh, probably like a two twenty. Right. So like decent numbers. Yeah. Oh, I could get up there. I right. could get up there. But like, because a perfect score is is uh, three hundred. Right. But I could break two hundred at times, and I was like, yeah, I'm good at this bowling. Right. So <laughs> I'm gonna do for life. <laughs> and then I saw that like what physically professional bowlers look like. I'm like, this is not. Uh, I don't think so. Right. I don't think so. But what the heck were we were talking about before? Class? Oh, yeah. When did I become aware of it? Yeah. So that's the thing. It's like, when you are a kid and you were in your neighborhood, you just look at that as that's normal. That's what it is. And it's not until you meet people that have different experiences and different backgrounds that they don't understand what you're saying just because they haven't experienced it and vice versa. That you start to go like, huh, okay. And it wasn't until... I think after college, because I used to do colleges a lot as for stand-up. I did like three years of colleges hardcore. Right. But then I got older, and as my act started to become a little bit more about my personal life, my personal experiences and opinions, and things that I have gleaned living in this universe, college kids can't relate to that. They have no personal experiences. Perhaps they have some funny stories, but they're not looking at their position in the world because they haven't paid bills yet. I think that paying bills is the ultimate equalizer. It makes you go, where's, who, why am I giving this money to people? Do I need that? Why do I need this? I have to work to make this much money, but then I have to give it to this guy. And it makes you start to think of how things are connected. And that for me, like at 23, 24, when I was out of school and started having to pay my own bills, I was like, things are different now. This is a different, that's why I, I, can, I can no longer relate to college kids. I find that really interesting because I, I said to somebody uh, recently, and I, we all only have our own experience, so it's very, mm-hmm. it's very hard to say that you know it, it would have worked differently if it was like this, or it would have worked you know exactly the same if my life had been like this. You know, you may have ended up in the same place, or you may have ended up in a completely different place. But one of the things that I always loved about like my parents was that they were they worked hard enough, and they 
saved hard enough and they tried everything they could do to send me to a, a like I had a half scholarship to high school and they paid for the rest of it to like the best school in our country town, right? Okay. But then once I went to university, they didn't really have enough money for for that. Right, I was the first person in my family who ever went to university, you know, who finished school and went to university. And they had enough money to kind of give me a little bit of money to go, but then basically I was on my own. You know, they had right. to pay for my education myself and, and I got a job. And I still think that's the best thing that ever happened in my life. Like at the time when I was at university and like everyone else is like just partying all the time and sleeping till midday and I had to fucking go to work in between classes. I was right, like, right, right. Te- it, it didn't feel like the best thing. But I, I just think that getting a job and being out in the workforce and, you know, what kind of job was it? So I was uh, studying journalism uh, at the time. Okay. And uh, I actually worked as a journalist at the, oh. exactly the same time. So um, they had a thing at the end of my first year uh, where they, uh, if you ha- were first in the course, it was kind of an incentive. It was like one of those things where I think, uh, it's so long ago that I can't remember the exact details, but they, uh, they accepted about 30 people into the course. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the first year... Like, there was only 20 places or 15 places to go into the second year. So, like, half the course nearly it wouldn't make the cut just based mm. on, you know, the, the, that that's how many places there were the second year. Right, right. But one of the other things they had was if you were first in your year that first year, there was an intern, pro- uh, intern system in the... Um, Canberra Press Gallery, which is like our, you know, Washington Press Gallery or whatever, um, where each of the papers or media outlets each year would take one person from this course and give them like a job. So sometimes the job would just be, you know, uh, getting people's coffee and cutting things out of the newspaper. But occasionally you get to write a story or something if there was something. And you're around people writing stories and and you see the process. I'm sorry, process. You right. see the process of it. <laughs> both, both the process and the process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so uh, so I worked there um, right through university. So Yeah, my mother worked a full-time job while she was going to school. And it took her six years to get her degree because she had to pay for it all mm. herself. And I uh, am still paying <laughs> for what? I'm being sued currently, actually, from my, co- my college because I defaulted on a student loan from a long time ago. But it's like I went to theater school. Again, I decided because you know what? It all, all has to do that I wanted to be a stand-up comedian, uh-huh. and I ju- I loved stand-up, but I saw it as people on a stage. So I was like, theater is the same thing. It's right. the same thing. I'm going Absolutely. on a stage saying words out loud. Mm. And it wasn't until I was in college when I started doing stand-up. I'm like, okay, this is its own form because I didn't understand as a young person that you just go do stand-up. You find an open mic. And you just start talking into it until things start to happen. I'm just like, oh, these people are making it up. Um, I don't even know how you get to like. I, I was, I didn't understand the, um, you know, that it takes a, it takes time to get good yeah. at it. I was just like, oh, they're just good. I don't. I can't just go be good. No. That's why. I well, you can't. I can't that, just go. That be, bit was right. You can't just go and be good. And that's why I stayed away from it right. because I'm just like, until I feel like I can just go be good, uh. I can't go to go do it. I gotta go, I gotta be good when I do it. I'm gonna suck at first. It's hard to know that though. It's hard to say to people, I mean, I wish that somebody had just, because I think I would be a better comedian now if someone came to me and said, hey, you know what? For the first like couple of years at least, it's going to suck most of the time, (laughs) right? Uh, And the more you suck, the better you'll get. The more risks you take, the more times you get up, the more you don't care about it sucking, you just work out how for it not to suck. 
Like, because what I, I think I tended to do early on was I didn't do enough gigs that sucked. Like, you'd only do shows in places where you thought you'd do well, or you'd only do your best material because you knew that'd go well, and you wouldn't necessarily take all those risks that, you know, of just going... Whereas if someone had just come... I mean, not that you can do this, but if someone come to you at 18 or whatever and said, don't worry about going to college, here's what you want to do. Just go to comedy clubs and start getting up, and in five years, when everyone else is finished in college, you'll be good at doing stand-up. Well, you know, I mean, I feel like college was it's in, it's important as a social experiment right if anything I said to uh, I said to the lawyers that are suing me the other day is like the irony in college is that you have to go to realize you should have never gone mm. like and she, she was like okay so you can pay tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I said something like uh, okay yeah what if I don't have any money is there someone I can give like a lot of high fives to and like right. mow a lawn or something she's like no can I not send a box of DVDs of my Comedy Central special somebody People just Surely. want to see me do be funny, right? right? That's gonna pay for all of this? No, oh, son of a bitch. Um, but like, can I you not like, go back to the college and do like a private show or something? We'll see. <laughs> like, it might be you might I have am, to pay it off in trade. I am gonna have to go do some shows over there, but they're not gonna pay me for it. Right. It's funny too. It's, it's always great getting sued by my college and simultaneously getting emails to donate. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, which one is it, be you? Which one would you like? Well, I feel like both actually are them asking you for money. So, yeah, basically, they're ask, both asking me for money, but, you know, this, the ideology behind why they're asking, like, one's nice, one's not. Anyway. Did you have a job? I couldn't get a job. That was what I was going towards, is that theater school. So, Boston University supposedly is one of, well, when I went there, it was one of the top three theater schools in the country, right? It was, like, BU, Juilliard, mm-hmm. NYU, and, like, Carnegie Mellon, right? So, it was, like... The four of them were interchangeable, which one were top three, right? Gold, silver, bronze, and a runner-up, right? So it was an incredibly demanding program. Right. And now I was essentially in class all of the time. And when I wasn't... See, that's the other thing is that like, we didn't get homework because we were just still there. So it was like while most people would be at home doing their homework... We, we were at school from 7 to 11, rehearsing every single night. Then we had class at 9 a.m. the next day. So what are you rehearsing? Like what? Plays. Yeah. Yeah. And so are you rehearsing plays and putting on plays or just rehearsing plays? Well, during the day was the, was the course. We're, we're us doing our courses, yeah. right? Acting, speech, you know, theater history, script development and stuff like that. And uh, that basically kept us busy from 9 to 5. And then uh, freshman year, you didn't perform. That was the that was the one thing. There was stuff that you can do that was extracurricular that was connected to the thing. But they, in a sense, were breaking you from your habits that you had your bad habits. <laughs> it's like you're 18. You don't know the hell you're talking about. Right. You have something. That's why we accepted yeah. you. Now we got to break you of your bad habits. Right. So don't perform because all you're gonna do is default to your horrible, horrible <laughs> habits. Right. Right. But then sophomore year, you start getting cast in plays. Right. You know, and it and it's based on seniority. That, you know, you get a small part and then when you're a senior, you get a big part, right? Uh, and there were four plays a year in every quarter. And 7 to 11, Tuesday through Friday, was rehearsal of those plays. Then that was outside. Those plays were where you were applying what it is that you learned during the day because they were directed by faculty or grad students. And so that was 7 to 11, Tuesday through Friday, 10 to 5 on Saturday. That's when we were rehearsing all the time. So essentially, I was in. I was in from sophomore year to senior year. I was in class from nine to eleven, with like two hours of freedom a day, every single day. Then ten to five on Saturday, and then Sunday was my free night. Ironically, the most work most of those actors will ever do. 
True. <laughs> it's downhill from theater school. And then Sunday I ran I ran the improv troupe. So we would rehearse on Sundays. Okay. And then when I finally found an open mic to do, it was on Sunday nights. There was like a bringer show where I could bring two people for five minutes of stage time. And I would start bringing people to that show on Sunday nights to do, to do stand-up. And that was about my, ooh, I think it was the summer of 2001 where I started, when I discovered it, because it was like summer, but then when the school year started, I was like, okay, I got to get students to come to it. So I started hanging out. I, I recently ran into a guy I started out with, and he pinpointed the date for me, because I, I was always unclear as to whether I started in 01 or 02, but he's like, no, I remember seeing you in the summer of 2001. I'm like, okay, it was before 9-11, because 9-11 <laughs> happened. And there's certain events that I remember happening in my stand-up development that uh-huh. were before that, yep. that I'm like, that happened before that, because why would I be talking about that you know, after 9-11. That doesn't make any sense. Then after it, I remember having this, like, is there any point to me doing stand-up? I'm not good at it yet. <laughs> <laughs> there are people that are saying things that are really good and interesting right. about all this stuff in the world that we're uh-huh. in, and I'm just like, there's no black people in Lord of the Rings. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> or are they orcs, guys? Like, that's where my act was. I mean, that is a fine point, though. Like, I mean... Yeah, somebody, somebody, uh, a comic I knew had a joke about, it was later, later, about like, he's like, I keep hearing all these black people talk about how there's no black people in Lord of the Rings. I'm like, yeah, it's a fantasy. Right. <laughs> it's a better world. That's why you're not there. That was his, I know, that, that was his joke. He was Latino, so he could say that. Right, is that how it works? Yeah, no. I no, don't I don't that. think so. He was just like an edgy guy, that was his thing. Um, have you ever, in that time, because mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear you talk about you know, the way that your comedy changes and, like, you know, what it is that you like to talk about. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I find fascinating is that we all obviously make mistakes along the way. You know, we do material that we're not proud of and probably still, you know, like, still sometimes oh, in your set. Or, or or there's stuff that you think's great now that you know next year you'll look back on and go, okay, well, maybe uh, that wasn't quite as good as I, exactly. I thought it was. Is there anything that stands out? Was there anything that you, you went... Did you try anything you went, this is not for me? Or do you ever feel like you stepped over well, the Well, yeah, mark? definitely. I mean, I feel, like, uh, I, I feel like I started with a good gauge because coming out of theater and coming out of just constantly experiencing what writing was in terms of, like, uh, in terms of trying to get something, get a point across to, to create your thesis and make a statement and being on stage. Being on stage has been, it's always, for me, it's always been about writing. Because it's very uncomfortable on stage. I know how to be on stage. So I never had the stage fright thing. But the writing and trying to write material I thought was interesting was that's always been the hardest part. So there have been the moments where, sure, like at the beginning of it, I was more performer than writer. So it was just like I had cutesy bits that I thought were smart, like No Black People in Lord of the Rings, Mm -hmm. which I did mostly because I was black and I was expected to talk about it. I was always very conscious of the expectations right, that the like audience you, had on you me. You were the black representative? I had to say something about being black or people would just be like, yeah. what's happening? Yeah, guys. Uh, he didn't uh, say anything about being black. Can't I, listen. Does, does he know that he's black? Does he know? I'm not sure that he knows that he's black. And you know what? That's how I started out with it. That was, that was my first bit was about you guys expect me to talk about this. And you know what? It doesn't matter what I talk about. You're going to hear it me talk about being black. I could be like, oh, stock markets are erratic. And you guys are going like, if I was a black man. That's what you guys are hearing. It doesn't matter what I talk about. So, 
I remember I used to have a bit about uh, J.K. Rowling. Uh-huh. Um, I don't even remember exactly what it was. It was something about Harry Potter and that it was the idea that, like, people were so excited that children were reading again. Uh-huh. And it was just, that was the whole big deal until J.K. Rowling got a phone call. Hello, this is J.K. What? No. No. What? What? No. No. Okay, bye. Fuck reading. I'm going to make a bunch of movies and be the richest woman in the world. That, that was... <laughs> That was that was like like that was a little incisive. That was like the beginning of like I can make a point here and there. It was like, but it's still I'm still talking about Harry Potter. Essentially, that's what I was like. So I was always, I was always been like, I've always been a little snobbish about what it is I'm talking about. I was like, it's okay for other people to talk about those things, but I can't. I can't think of a way to talk about those subjects without the hack joke. And I think that in New York, which is where I was really cutting my teeth, there's such a, a schism between the alternative comedy scene and the club comedy scene. What does that mean? Explain that. Well, it's a very hard thing to explain. I have shite loads of theories. Here they go. Okay, great. Um, I believe that we are currently in the third wave of alternative comedy. All right. I like this already. Yes. <laughs> and I believe that we're, it's starting to transition out of the third wave into the fourth wave. Because I'm starting to see, because I've been doing comedy for 12 years now. And I'm seeing the younger, the guys who were below me are becoming more and more established. The, the eight niners, right? But now there's guys below them that are like four fives that are like, oh, that's the next generation. Those are the people that are going to be the fourth wave. The first wave of alternative comedy started, I believe, in like the 80s, 90s. And it was people like Dana Gould, David uh-huh. Cross, Louis C.K., Mark Marin. A lot of the, the, those guys coming out of that San Francisco scene. San Fran- it was like San Francisco and New York, New York. and yeah. Boston a little bit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, mostly San Francisco, New York, and then, and then by extension Los Angeles as well. So I believe Dana Gould put it in the way that they were doing comedy in comedy clubs, but then they realized that there weren't enough people that... Uh, were of their age and their own experience coming to comedy clubs. So they decided to do shows in the places where their peers were. Yeah. Right? But Because there's a lot of people going, I like you, Dana Gould, but I don't like a two-drink minimum and nachos. But that first wave... And I don't have to pay my bill like halfway through your... Those first first waivers had to do stand-up in comedy clubs. Because that's where comedy was. Because that's where comedy was. So they had the tools of being able to just do Uh stand-up. And now... They could make a club work. And now all those people are... Are mainstream uh-huh. now? They're stars. They're yeah. Sarah Silverman. They're Louis C.K. Mm-hmm. Right? They're Bill Burr. I don't think Bill Burr would put himself there, but Bill Burr is an interesting case because the people who were the third waivers of stand-up worship the first waivers, not the second waivers. So people like Bill Burr, who I think he has a lot to say about alternative comedy ruining stand-up, but he's talking about the second wave. Mm-hmm. Now, the first wave, they created the alt scene. It was a reaction, an alternative, an alternative to clubs, right. to what had become this post-Seinfeldian, everyone's doing observational, what is the deal, have re- you noticed this? I remember stumbling into, uh, it was the, I think it was the first time I ever came to America, and I did uh, some c- club gigs in New York, and this is like a long time ago now, mm-hmm. and it was about that time. Mm. And I remember going in to do a set at Gotham, and I wasn't doing... The original I, Gotham on 22nd Street? Yes, oh. and I was practicing a, you know, a, like a T, well, like a, yeah, a TV set, right? And so I was working clean, and I'd never felt more edgy. 
because everyone else on the bill had like chinos on and their shirt tucked into their pants and was were doing material about what is the deal with, you know. And it was. It, it was like, oh my God. It's like everyone saw Seinfeld and went, I could be Seinfeld. I'd like to be Seinfeld. Well, because he created this paradigm of if you do this type of comedy, you will get a TV show. Yeah. No, and that I, paradigm died. I mean, Seinfeld right. did that. Kevin James, Ray Romano, uh, you know, uh, Roseanne. And Roseanne is edgy, but she was still mainstream. Uh So it was like, there was this, I gotta get famous thing. But then there were the guys who were like, that's not interesting to me. They started the first wave of alt. Mm -hmm. The second wave of alt. These are the guys who were born into alt already being a thing. Uh So they didn't go to comedy clubs. They pursued specifically only shows that were in the alt scene and cultivated their voices through that, that crowd only. There was, you're playing to your base, as opposed to the first wave, knew how to, as um, I think Blaine Kapatch, you know Blaine Kapatch? He used to open for Hicks, he was good friends with Bill Hicks and stuff, and I think Mark Marin was like, because Blaine was in the San Francisco scene, he went there with Pat and Oswald, they moved there together, I believe. And so I think that Mark Marin had asked him, do you do that heady stuff on the, on the road? And Blaine's like, I know how to wrap it around a bat, right? They were conscious of how to do comedy clubs. The second wave, they were more and more precious. I've always had that attitude, by the way. Like, I say this to people at home. Mm-hmm. I say you should never change your act for the club. Like, you know, you just have to find out how to make your act work in the club. Exactly. And you can. Like, it, sometimes it's only a few words or, like, a way you go into something. And you can still do that bit. Or it's the way that you reflect on the bit. Or the way that you position yourself you know, in regard to the audience with the bit. But Absolutely. And anyway. that's what I try to do. That's why I try to do clubs and alt. Right. Because I feel like the difference between the two is that alternative comedians will sometimes sell out content, I mean, uh, sell out structure for content. Mm-hmm. And club comedians will sell out content for structure. Like, they'll be, be saying say, say something really interesting, but they're going to put a fucking joke in there. Uh-huh. Like, they're gonna, it's going to be a dick joke. Yeah. And they'll sell out the intelligence of what uh, they're saying to just get that freaking yeah. laugh. And then, that is true, because you're like, well, they're paying for their wings. I need to keep their attention. <laughs> exactly. And then an alt comic will sometimes be saying something interesting, but you're rambling. Uh-huh. You are rambling. I do not know what your point just is. Just tighten it up. Tighten all Give of it some this structure. Up. Please. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Yeah. It's fascinating. Right. Trust me. But if I knew what it is that you were saying and, and what your point was, I would be with you more. Interesting. Right? So that's always been, and that was... Because I kind of started at the end of the second wave and kind of am in this class with the third wave of guys. So the second wave, I would say, I would name people like Eugene Merman, like Dimitri Martin. Uh-huh. Um, I think that The State, the sketch show The State was the first wave of comedy. But this, but the, the, the group Stella, which was Michael Ian Black, Michael Showalter, and David Wayne, was the second wave. Uh-huh. So it's like, there are people like that that, oh yeah, so Janine Garofalo, David Cross, their first wave, mm-hmm. right? So the second wave came up worshipping those guys, but then became more precious about comedy. Then, I believe, the alt-comedy club scene, the alt-comedy scene, became as exclusive, if not more exclusive, than clubs. Oh, I think definitely. And I think the third wave is the reaction to that, where these are the people who felt capped out of, they're not cool enough for the second wave. It's like the hipster nerds took it all over, I'm not cool enough to them. They hate me. But they respect the second wave less than they respect the first wave. 
And and do you think that's where Bill Burr is in that third? Is that where you would say? Or you? I think that Bill Burr is when he's talking about alt, he's reacting to the second. To that wave. second wave, yeah. But that's he right. didn't. He just came up doing clubs. Doing clubs. That's right. That's his perspective on that. But he also was friends with people from the first wave, which is why his content is always interesting. Right. He's very interesting. He's got content and, he'd and be, structure. He'd be respected by people from that first wave. Like and he is because he's friends with them. Right. They're, these are his mates now, right? But this is the interesting thing to me is I saw, so I, I, I'm getting to this for a reason. Go ahead. I went and saw Pete Holmes's uh, yeah. show that he Pete does it. is a third waiver. Right. And, and then he does it Largo. And like Pete's a guy who could destroy anywhere. Absolutely no doubt. Because he did clubs in New York. He became the alt scene, but he did clubs. And he has, yeah. I'll tell you something he told me once, but go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. So he, he, could, he can definitely destroy anywhere. And, and, and like you said, he's happy across all those mediums. He's played them all. He's done every show. He understands yeah, what comedy is. Uh, but it was interesting that the audience were a bit second wave, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So the whole show, the audience were loving every... And I won't name the comedians because then it might... But anyway, they were loving like, you know, like a real alt comedy night. And it was a great night. Like there was a lot of really funny, good people on. Everyone was... But Bill came out at the end and was headlining and was saying, talking about some topics or saying some things that, you know, the audience didn't instinctively agree with or didn't instinct and couldn't quite put aside that he was, he was satirizing them as much as he was satirizing the things that he was talking about. Right. And the more that they backed off it, you know, like, uh, why is he telling us all these jokes and doing all these things? The more he ramped it up, of course, because that's what he wanted to do. But it was actually very interesting to be in a room where you're like, this guy is regarded in comedy, like, um, you know, around comedians as, like, a top five in the world guy at the moment. Right, Bilber, definitely, right? definitely. And he came out to headline this show where he should have just smashed it. And if the audience had kind of been smart enough to understand that, you know, he's saying really interesting things. And you don't have to agree with everything a guy says to, like, you know, think it's an interesting but that's, topic. But that's a second waiver thing. That's what I'm saying. The audience was second wave. I don't think the show was. Well, I think I felt like they, most... they want to agree with everything. Yeah. If they disagree with you or just like, wait a minute, they're, you can't represent that. They will just not go with you. Yeah. You don't have to agree with someone to find what they're saying funny. Right. You know? I don't think I ever agree with anything Patrice O'Neill ever said. I was literally about to... <laughs> He's a perfect case for that. We're just like... And my friend once said that about Rich Voss in New York. Uh-huh. He came out the show. He's like, I agree with nothing that man said, but I laughed the entire time. And it's like, but, and Patrice is that way. It's just like, he knows how to make his point. And you have to separate your ego from him. And the second wave audiences, they're just kind of like, we're all the same. And we're seeing people who are us, that are representing us and our opinions. But it's just like, so if they disagree with somebody, it's like, he's not one of us. Right. That's what they're thinking. That's yeah. how they think about it. He's not one of us. That's, that's an alt way. I would enjoy that if they just started chanting that at gigs, though. One of us. And honestly, <laughs> I think that, like, my act, because I'm, I'm this wave of black comedian that didn't have to do the black rooms. So tell me about the black rooms, because people, particularly in Australia, who listen to this won't understand even what that means. Well, I mean, I'm sure that I could work out some of it from it's, the title. It's, but. It's, it's, it's Deaf Comedy Jam. Deaf Comedy Jam is the best slash worst thing that ever happened to black comedy. So I, I think a lot of Australians don't understand what... I mean, people who like comedy... Um, we'll, we'll have some understanding of that, but as a general rule, like yeah. I don't think people would under, even understand what that means. Well, I'll break it down. So, there was a thing called the Chitlin Circuit, and it was these were these these underground downtown black rooms, 
in which there were comedians that were black comedians that performed for all black audiences, okay. right? And these are people like Red Fox, you know, Moms Mabley, et cetera, et cetera. So that became its own separate entity from mainstream comedy. There was this underground of black comedy, right? Now, there's something in black comedy called the crossover, which is where you were doing black rooms, but then you get mainstream success and white people also like you. Right. <laughs> so it's people like Richard Pryor uh -huh. crossover. And he became the, the Zion, you know, like for this is what we have to be. And Bill Cosby, who I believe is equally as much of a genius as Richard Pryor, and I still, in a weird way, feel that Cosby is still underappreciated. I still think that even though he's considered one of the greatest of all time, I still think he's underappreciated. Uh, do you think that that is because uh, he works mostly clean? Yes. I My theory is that Bill Cosby's comment on race is that it's absent from his act. Yes. Is that he doesn't have to talk about it. You see him. Do you see me? Right. Then you know I'm black. Yes. I don't have to say anything about it. And I believe that that's Cosby's comment on race. Whereas Pryor strangled, he, like he took the bull of race and wrapped it and strangled it. It was a rodeo watching him freaking battle with it, the whole thing. But what happened is, and, and Dick Gregory said this really well, is that if you were to take away the language of what Pryor was saying, the expletives, the dirtiness of the language, his genius is still apparent. You take away the surface, he is still Richard Pryor, right? Now the problem is, that this wave of comedian came that thought that the surface was the key to the genius. But this is always the case of comedy, isn't it? This is the thing that comes up a lot on this podcast, which is that idea of, like, people see Bill Hicks and they don't take the philosophy away. They take away the, the anger. fact that he's, he's an angry white guy. So he's am an angry I. Guy. I'll talk about aliens and JFK and then I'll be Bill Hicks. Or, like, you know, with Louis, they're like, I'll talk about masturbation all the time and then I'll be Louis. Here's my new... Uh, there, was a, there was a time where I felt like every joke had a unicorn in it for some reason. Yeah. There was always a reference to a unicorn. And I had a joke that was like that, too. There's, theme, now, there's themes in comedy, though. It's now so I feel weird. like the new trope is um, uh, crying alone. Silently crying. I feel like I keep hearing male comedians being like, and then I'll go home and cry. You're something like that. It's like, oh, interesting. That's it. That is interesting. Like I, keep, I keep feeling like it's the, I'm bipolar, is what they're constantly proclaiming. The newest one for me, the one that I see, and I love it, because like, there is this weird thing in comedy where, like, and particularly when with the Melbourne Comedy Festival, I always notice this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you do that sort of thing of just going, oh, it's the midget here. Oh, oh, it's the monkeys with something shiny here because everyone has some sort of like little theme that has gone through the, the scene or whatever and it's, it's been reflected in the work. Some idea that just starts showing up. And without people kind of, no one's, I remember there was an infinite number of monkeys here. Everyone had like an infinite number of monkeys joke. And the thing that I'm oh, noticing. Back to the Future, that's another one. The thing that I'm noticing at the moment is a, peop, a lot of people are doing a version of finishing a story with uh, throwing the microphone down. You know, that sort of like, uh, you know, when someone mocks, like, flying, throwing a microphone, like, they're not, they're not doing it on stage, they're not throwing the microphone down, but they do that thing where it's like, they make their point, and then they just throw the microphone and step away. Have you ever seen someone do that? Do you even know what I'm talking about? You don't seem like you I, do. I, I'm not exactly sure. Are they still holding the mic? No, it's not them, they don't actually throw the mic. Maybe I'm explaining this badly. I think that's what the problem <laughs> I'm is. I'm thinking, are they dropping, literally dropping the mic? Yeah, but they're, they're not doing a Chris Rock. Yeah, but they're miming that. Like, but at the end of some story that isn't about, like, dropping the mic. Do you understand? Like, so they're I'm out of here. Drop the mic. Back. Yeah, yeah, okay. I see what I'm seeing saying. a lot of people do that at the end of jokes, and it was not a thing that I'd ever seen before, and then I saw, like, five... 
people. It's a, it's a mock that this story doesn't deserve right. this amount of epic reaction to yeah. it, right? Huh. Huh. That is very interesting. Uh. Well, okay, so there became this scene of black comedy after the post-prior generation mm-hmm. where it was black comics historically are looked at as more performers and less writers. Okay. So it's like it became a scene of uh, people who I think were, and you know, every black comedian in the world has different things to say about, or in the United States at least, has different things to say about this. But it's just like it became a scene of act outs. Okay, and people yeah. were, it was like the competition was being authentic. It's almost like gangster rap, uh-huh. where it's like the glorification, it, be, it used to be reportage, where it's like this is the world on the streets. I have to do these things to survive. Then it became, I do these things, therefore I'm amazing. Okay, so it was a performer culture. This is where we were basically at. Right? Yeah, I think that it was it was more of a performer culture than it was writing. But there was this this like so like gangster rap. It it became it it, it changed from reportage to glorification. It was like I have to do these things on the streets to survive. Then it became because I do these things, it makes me better than you. It makes me a man. It makes me realer. Okay. Right. Interesting. And that manifested itself in black comedy, where it was like. Then it was like the act, people's acts got dirtier. You know what I mean? Like it became more about sex. It became more about certain easy tropes that mm-hmm. you were supposed to at- uh, attack. There was a way that you were supposed to act, a way that you were supposed to speak, that the black audience got trained to expect this thing. And that to them was raw and authentic and, and unabashedly black, mm-hmm. right? So there were comedians that, that look at that structure and that style as that's the only way. That's the legitimate black voice. In that's comedy. the legitimate black voice. If I, don't go, if I don't earn respect in these rooms and speak about these things, then I'm fake. Uh-huh. I'm a phony and I'm a traitor, right? So Deaf Comedy Jam gave black comedians a platform that they never had before, right? Comedy show on HBO. The first season was hosted by Martin Lawrence, uh-huh. right? So it was like suddenly there were the ge- there were geniuses that were on that show: Chappelle, you know, Chris Tucker, Bernie Mac, D.L. Hughley. Then there was a lot of copycats that just aren't as good, aren't as original. But and then there was just this this pool, I think, of mediocrity, and it was like this black mediocrity. It looks like this. There are people who have proven themselves better than that to rise from you know the cream rises to the top you know like some of the people that I named that come out of that Chris Rock used to have black people leave when he was starting in New York he wasn't a certain style that they were expecting and black people would walk out on his ass right until I think it was Damon Wayans or it was either Eddie Murphy no it was Eddie Murphy that that was the one who came in and was like because Chris Rock was like not even really working the club. He was kind of like moving chairs. You know, he was paying his dues. And then Eddie Murphy showed up and he was like adamant about like who, what black comedians are on tonight. And they're like, uh, Chris Rock's on. <laughs> and Chris, Chris is like moving chairs and shit. And they're like, Chris, you're going up. Eddie Murphy wants to see you. He's like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> so it was just like because of that, yeah. that like they, he wouldn't have gotten that shot otherwise. So that's the other thing. So Pryor versus Murphy, right? Richard Pryor said in his book, I never really jived with Eddie Murphy. And it showed me why I never really liked Eddie Murphy. That's very interesting. And I was like, whoa, what? Because he's like, when, when, when 
when Eddie Murphy showed up, everyone started saying, he's so, he's new you. He's so much like you. And he's like, I never saw it. He's like, and it's because I always thought Eddie Murphy's act was mean. Right. He's like, I thought he was mean. And I used to say, you should try being nice to people. Richard Pryor's act was never mean. He might be angry, but he was angry at injustice. Right. And he made fun of himself. He was vulnerable. He was like, I don't get it. I don't know yeah. why I do these things. He wasn't kicking down. He but, was he was the joke at the yeah even yeah, essentially it was always back to him being the joke whereas exactly. Eddie Murphy was the coolest guy in the room. He was the coolest guy. He's, he's in gonna a red you, leather suit and he's, he's going to get you before I get. You. But I'm yeah. going to get you before you get me. It's interesting, which I think connects to a, a tremendous fear and insecurity. Mm. That's why he's such an agoraphobe, right? Is he an agoraphobe? Big agor. He won't. Leave. Yeah, he shouldn't leave his house to make movies anymore. That's <laughs> oh, watch out! But what Eddie Murphy was, he was he was a bit of a bully. Mm. And it appealed to the bravado in this machismo that black men believe we're supposed to have. So the generation post Eddie Murphy took that bravado and were like, that's what I got to do. I can do that. Right. And then Def Comedy Jam was the wave after Eddie Murphy of a lot of guys doing the bravado. But then there are the guys inside of there that were original and were interesting. Do but, you think that that had something to do with the relative ages they were when they had success as well, though? Because, definitely. like, as young men and, and as young comedians, you know that, like, I mean, I particularly know when you first start out, like, there is a real bravado about it. You do think you're, you know, fantastic and doing all this groundbreaking stuff that you, like, the more you do it and the more you've lived your life. And also, as Steve Martin said in his book, the older you get, the you know, when you know someone who's had cancer, it's harder to make a you know, a mean joke about cancer. If you're going to make a joke about cancer, you'll probably make a you know, a smarter joke about it or a joke about this, like, you know. And Eddie Murphy was like 20, 21 or whatever yeah. when these things came out, whereas like prior... Younger. younger. Yeah, like... He was, yeah, like, right? he, he was, I think he was 18 when he was cast on Saturday Night Live. Yeah, right. So, like, I mean, he's an 18-year-old guy. I mean, you, you are meant to be sort of full of bravado at that time in your life as well right and he yeah and that's what he was he was the guy on the street corner that was funnier than everybody that can make fun of you harder than anybody and Pryor was um he was more of of a critic more of a cultural critic and a critic of himself as well right so I think that what happened was the bravado got taken and that became the standard for what black comedy is supposed to look like. Mm -hmm. And that became the standard for what black audiences expected. And again, like I said, there are people who transcend that, that go to this next level, a Chris Rock or a Dave Chappelle, for instance. Um, But those scenes and those shows started to exist. Now, if you were a black comedian, you just had to do that. Right. Because that's where your, your peers were going to be. That's where you were going to meet the people who would be your friends for the rest of your life. So it's like you had to ingratiate yourself to ingratiate yourself to black people to get black people to like you. Now I never did that. I didn't go to do those black. I did. I did some black rooms, but the way that I have, I am, and the way that I talk is the way I've always talked and the way that I've always been. I was a little bit more, I was like, people are getting stabbed and shot outside, I'm going to stay inside. Right. I'm going to do a little reading instead. Yeah. I'm going to work on this uh, JK Rowling bit. Exactly. <laughs> so when I go up in front of a black audience, they are suspicious of me. Still? Still. I, if it's all black, and, this is the, and it's the same with hipster audiences. When the audience has this secret unspoken, we're all the same agreement, I don't do well. If it's an all hipster audience, an all black audience, I don't do well. I need someone from every walk of life to get to like I because I will get the patches and then it becomes a mass 
but just kind of like I have always been around all sorts of different people all the time. You know, it wasn't always one thing. I didn't spend all my time trying to relate to one group. I was a chameleon as a kid. So it's like I could exist in the black group. I could exist in the, with, with the Asian gangsters. I could talk to a teacher. I could talk to some random adult at a store. And I had different personalities and different styles for each of those places. So it was just kind of like I've always been a chameleon. I didn't spend my whole life trying to get one group to understand me. And thus, in a way, one group doesn't. It has to be a bunch of different people from different groups. I'm the United Nations of comedy. You are. Aaron Vaughan, stand-up chameleon. Thank you so much for being on our podcast. Our podcast. It's our podcast now. Okay, sorry. Yours and mine. I'm the co-host. You're the co-host. Yeah. Well, at least you are today. Hey, where can people find you? Uh, on Twitter? Yeah, I'm on... I'm on uh, I'm, it's BaronVaughn.com. I'm on Twitter. It's uh, Black. B-A-R-V-O-N-B-L-A-Q. Now, why is that? It's just a weird variation that on my name that I like that is it's so confusing to people. Yeah. <laughs> it's confusing to me. It's always confusing. Every time I go to look you up on Twitter to send you a message or something, I always forget that yeah. you're not under your actual name. I see it's like at first it was like ah, people are people are making mistakes, but then I realized there's more mistakes than there are accuracies, so I'm wrong. <laughs> but I've already but I've already committed to this title. <laughs> Uh, and then my podcast, I have a podcast called Deep Shit. Yeah, which is great, by the way. Oh, why, thank you. I Paul. very much enjoy it. Um, and uh, your is your special out? Can people buy that? Uh, yeah, that- it's on iTunes. It's on iTunes. The Baron's on the half hour. And that's what it's called, the half hour? Yeah, it's just because it was like a, that was the, the, the brand name of mm. Comedy Central, the half hour. So I am Baron, uh, just look for me, Baron Vaughn. It's on iTunes. I don't know where, where else it might be, Amazon Video. Oh, I got three names for your next specials. Oh, okay. Here we go. This is well, a good way to finish up. There's Lokwell references, which oh, we talked about. Yes, Lokwell references I like a lot because it's very convoluted. It's That's very what I convoluted. <laughs> where it's just kind of like, it's it's basically the, the, the kernel of the idea yeah. is you talking about, you, you know, local things in different places, like what each culture could be like, right? Mm. Then there is um, uh, Williphant in the room. <laughs> You know, uh, and what, is, what do you feel like that show is? That show is about your experiences uh, at parties and social gatherings, and the things that people don't want to talk about or address. Actually, that's not a bad one. That's all, I'm gonna pleasantries versus, you know, what's really going on. Okay, and here's the other one. Um, <laughs> will you stop? <laughs> Well, we'll stop this podcast right now. Uh, hit us up on the Facebook page. Uh, if you want to uh, give us feedback on the show, that's the best place. Tofop.com uh, for all the podcasts and all the previous podcasts. And, of course, you can find me on Twitter, Will underscore Anderson. If you like the show, rate it on iTunes to keep us up at the top of uh, the charts. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.